Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Leo gazed out at the misty surface of the loch over the little island. It seemed ugly and sinister to him in the nighttime. His cigar had gone out, so he relit it bent down to bury the match, then straightened up and looked skywards. The ghost of Helen Addison sat on the parapet of the folly, her nightdress translucent in the moonlight. She smiled down at him. You just heard an extract from a novel called The Ghost of Helen Addison. It's going to be published this summer. But how does that happen? This is part one of Debut, a podcast about just that, how an idea scribbled onto a page becomes a novel in a bookshop. So the book is called The Ghost of Helen Addison. The author? Well, the name on the cover will be Charles E. McGarry. The guy you're going to meet in this series, we'll get to know him as Charlie. Along the way, we'll find out more about what it takes to get a great story into mainstream publishing and what that means for everyone involved. We'll hear about agents found and lost, how one rejection note among dozens of rejection notes can hold the key to success, how your lead character is sometimes not quite the guy you think he is, and much more. You can listen to the first six episodes right now. We'll be back in the autumn of 2017 with a two-episode update a few months after the publication of Charlie's book. That's where we're headed, but we're going to begin three years ago. It's the summer of 2014. Charlie's phone is ringing and the number on the screen belongs to Rory Scarf. For Charlie, that's pretty exciting. Hey, my name is Rory Scarf and I'm a literary agent at Furness Lawton. Rory had been running the sports division of HarperCollins, one of the UK's biggest publishing houses. In 2014, he had just made a big career change. I had always been a non-fiction publisher, really. I mean, I'd done the odd fiction, and I'd done a lot of sport, which I loved doing. And I worked with some amazing people like Wayne Rooney and Mike Tyson and Usain Bolt and so on. But being an agent and having the freedom to go after whatever and to take any idea and to approach any writer on their merits and nothing else was was really um, exhilarating, as I say, and very exciting. The literary agent is one of the gatekeepers of the publishing world. The agent stands between a first-time writer and a publisher who gets sent hundreds of unsolicited manuscripts every year. For the publisher, an essential filter. For the writer, a vital guide through a strange and foreign land. Around the same time that Rory was making his move, Charlie was walking in the footsteps of thousands of writers before him. He'd sent out his manuscript to agents and publishers, and now it was coming back with notes of rejection. But that all changed when Rory read it. He was making his name as an independent agent, doing deals left and right, and now he wanted Charlie to join his growing list of authors. It's time to meet Charlie. First impressions. Early 40s, tall, gently receding, red hair. Later in this series, you'll hear him describe the central character in his novel, Leo Moran. A lot of the words he uses could also describe Charlie himself. Cultured, thoughtful, ever so slightly anachronistic. 
Here he is describing the beginning of his relationship with Rory. Well, the first interactions I had with Rory was on the phone, and I would say that it was went as well as it possibly could have gone. Um, but obviously, we wanted to meet in person and potentially, you know, sign something. I went down to London probably just for a couple of nights, stayed with my cousin in the East End. But timing is everything. In London, Charlie learned that in the short space of time between his initial phone calls with Rory and this meeting, the ground had shifted. Rory told me that there was this job offer that that he'd been made, that he was considering it. It was obviously potentially a game changer as far as him and I were concerned. You know, in theory, he'd be happy to proceed with me, but um, suddenly there was this kind of sort of Damocles over the whole uh, arrangement. Charlie and I, sort of separate to this, had been having a conversation about his scripts, which I thought was really good. But of course, when I joined the agency, and this is what I, I said to Charlie at the time, you don't quite have the same autonomy and you have to think slightly differently about the list that you're building. And so the decision as it ended up was that, um, you know, I, I kind of had to focus on other things and, and sort of regretfully, I didn't feel I was going to be the right agent for Charlie at the time. So he and I had a couple of meetings. I thought he was a fantastic guy and I loved his scripts and all that. But the timing just wasn't right. And so that was kind of the last that Charlie and I spoke to each other. Let's stop here for a moment. It looked like Charlie had broken in. He had an agent on board. Next stop, book deal. Suddenly, no agent. No book deal. Now he's on the outside and he's been here before. To understand how Charlie was feeling, you need to know how he had got to that first meeting with Rory in London. We need to rewind to get to the start of the story of Charlie and his novel. We need to find out where he was and what he was up to in 2003. I was a business analyst with British Telecom. I lived in London, Edinburgh. I wanted to write fiction and I, I, I had to get out of that job. It wasn't, there was nothing particularly wrong with it, but I just, I was just treading water and I just left. I just did it. This was 14 years ago. Charlie was 30 years old, a business analyst no more, now an aspiring writer. He needed a break. Maybe he was looking for inspiration. He decided to spend some time travelling. His destination? Australia. One of the things I did was went along what's called the Great Ocean Road, which goes along the coast of the southern coast of Victoria. And it's quite a dramatic, beautiful um, coastal drive. What are you driving? I'm driving a 1979 Datsun Cherry, which is a car my uncle used to have. A girl I knew in Melbourne lent me it. That was her car. I was really kind of her. I was kind of on my own. I was feeling a bit isolated. I wasn't really making friends at youth hostels or anything. And whatever I was reading, I'd, I'd finished. I was bored with. It might sound a bit fancy. And I'm not. I'm not one of these people that says everything happens for a reason. But it is fascinating sometimes when you look back on your life and think, well, if that had gone differently, or sometimes even a seemingly innocuous thing, you take a different fork in the road, that uh, it would have sent you on a completely different trajectory in your life. Anyway, I was in this resort in, the, in, in southern Australia or Victoria. Went to a bookshop and I was just 
examining the shelves. I just couldn't find anything I, I wanted to read. And I'd never really done this before, and I haven't done it since. I've always got ideas about books that I want to read. And I said to the assistant, it was a guy, a young man, I said, look, is there anything you can recommend? He, he was good, this fella, because he didn't just say what type of books do you like. He asked me a few questions about myself and what, I guess, what was important to me. He then came up with the solution of James Lee Burke. James Lee Burke is one of my favourite writers. He's 80 years old now, still producing brilliant lyrical novels that land on the outskirts of the crime genre. He's written 20 of them about one character, a detective from New Iberia, Louisiana, called Dave Robichaud. It was one of these books that now found its way into Charlie's hands. The book that he gave me was Julie Blonde's Bounce, which featured a baddie called Legion Goodry. I've gone on to read all the Dave Robichaud books, but this one was, it's like the first is always the best. And I can't work out whether that's because it was the first or whether it actually is just the best. But he's such a frightening baddie. The denouement in the book always sticks in my mind. James C. Burke's got this way of describing the way evil inhabits some people. It's really chilling. It makes you wonder if he's maybe come across people like that in his real life. Anyway, I was slightly loath to buy this book because I actually am not a big crime reader. I certainly wasn't up until that point. But I was just absolutely blown away by it. And I've kind of been blown away by James Lee Burke ever since. There's no doubt that if I hadn't read that book and got into James Lee Burke, there's no question that I would... There's no way I could have conceivably then created my own crime novel. So Charlie came back to Scotland determined to pursue his ambition as a writer. His first project, titled The Road to Lisbon, was connected to his own experience as a supporter of Celtic and the folklore around their victory in the final in 1967 of football's European Cup, a match famous for the exodus of tens of thousands of mostly working-class men from Glasgow to the Portuguese capital, where the match against Inter of Milan was played. I'd come up with this idea when I was living in London of a road movie based upon Celtic winning the European Cup 1967. If you're brought up as a Celtic supporter, that event abounds with stories about supporters getting there and the things that happened on their way there. And um, and then, obviously, the crowning glory of actually winning the thing. So I had this idea that I could have a group of friends setting off from Glasgow by road. The inner journey of development of these guys kind of been reflected by the um, the road journey. The first efforts were pretty terrible, to be honest. Anyway, long story short, our mutual friend, Martin Gregg, he asked to see it and he liked it. Yeah, well, I've actually known Charlie all my life. We grew up beside each other in Glasgow, in the west end of Glasgow. Our families are very close friends and, you know, I've always found him to be a fantastic, very charismatic and, and funny guy but I think he's also a really serious guy in terms of his own talents. That's our mutual friend Martin Gregg. Me and Martin are equal halves of a small company that back then were publishing sports books. These days we also produce podcasts like this one you're listening to. Charlie had initially written The Road to Lisbon as a screenplay but now working together with his friend he developed it as a dual narrative novel. Martin wrote from the perspective of Jock Steen, the real-life and legendary manager of Celtic in 1967. Charlie wrote from the perspective of a fan on a road trip from Glasgow to Lisbon. Dialogue was a huge part of that. Um, So he had to convey the relationship between this group of friends who were travelling across Europe. But the thing that struck me when when I actually read the final manuscript, 
I think it's only then you sometimes get the whole picture in, in your head of how it all fits together. And amid the, all this great dialogue, you get these kind of bursts of beautiful prose. And one of them in particular really stood out for me. It was the main character um, who was flirting with this girl outside a party in London. And then this is the line that really captured my imagination. She hauls me into the street. Her warm breath smells of red wine. We dance and splash around for a little while. Then I draw her towards me. I stroke her red hair back from her forehead and gaze into her eyes. Then I kiss her as the first rain of summer sings in the gutters and soaks us to the skin. I still remember the first moment I read it and I just thought this is going to be my favourite line in this whole novel. Charlie, the writer, was really starting to emerge there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In 2012, The Road to Lisbon found a publisher. This is where the title of this podcast needs a little qualification. The Road to Lisbon was a co-authored work of football fiction that was published five years ago. The Ghost of Helen Addison is Charlie's first solo novel and his debut in the crime genre. Nine years after he picked up that James Lee Burke novel in Australia, the publication of The Road to Lisbon gave Charlie some much-needed encouragement. That was that was really important. It was really important to be in that headspace, A, that you're producing a lot, but also just that you've got this confidence that this isn't necessarily you hammering away in your bedroom. This validation, is, like an aspect of validation. Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's like the worst person to judge your writing is you. People who are geniuses and people who are delusional have exactly the same thoughts about their writing. Some stuff at certain stages of my writing career, I've been delusional about it. You know, it's like some of it's been god-awful. Just as this project was getting off the ground, Charlie shared for the first time another idea he had been developing. Here's Martin again. I actually met Charlie one Saturday night with the purpose of telling him that we had a book deal for the Road to Lisbon novel. Uh, so that was going to be a really kind of happy occasion. I remember meeting in a pub that evening and I'd found out a couple of days before that we had this book deal and... And this was me imparting the information to Charlie. So I was really looking forward to it. And the, the evening became more about talking about that project. But I do remember he mentioned that he had written this crime novel pretty quickly. Like within six months, he'd had this more or less finished manuscript. 
for a first draft of the manuscript and I was quite intrigued by that and I think a little bit further down the line he passed it on to me and he told me a couple of things about it he told me it was obviously it was a, it was a crime novel and it had a supernatural theme and both of those things were a bit of a turn off for me uh, I don't read crime and there was something about the supernatural theme slightly jarred with me as well but I read it with an open mind and, and I really enjoyed it and Despite the fact that Charlie was a close friend, I did feel that I could look on it objectively. I think the process we'd been through had allowed us to really go at each other's work and assess it objectively. It was clear he could write to a high standard, but the thing that I didn't know was how it would place within the genre of crime writing because I don't read crime. So, Yes, it had literary merit from where I was standing, but did it have commercial value? Would it sit on the, the, the shelves of a crime section in a bookshop? I just I didn't know the answer to that question, so I had to find somebody that would be able to answer it more adequately than I could. This is where I come in. I do read crime, but I read it slowly, and I always have loads of stuff I mean to get through. So when Martin gave me a manuscript by his friend, I wasn't all that excited. I felt obliged to read the thing. It was going to take me a while and it was going to get in the way of my next Burke or George Pelicanos or Martin Cruz Smith. Those are my guys. Pretty soon though, I was all the way into Charlie's story. I wanted to know more about what was going down in the beautiful eerie location of Loch Don that Charlie had created and what had happened to poor Helen Addison. By now, Charlie was at the stage of sending his manuscript to publishers and literary agents, and the rejection slips were coming back with depressing regularity. One at least, though, contained a note that embedded itself at the back of his mind. One that I remember said I wrote well, but that I didn't get into the drama quickly enough. She also said that the body count was too low. Now, agents aren't required to give you uh, feedback, so you, you just got to be grateful for any information you can get. A lot of them won't even reply to you. They won't even tell you that they're not taking you on. And that goes for publishers as well. So I was grateful for this feedback. But what this agent had done was she'd sown a seed of doubt about the way the book was structured. She said that it needed to get into the action quicker. And she was right, it did. I wouldn't say I brushed it aside. I just couldn't see a way of, of fixing that. When actually, probably you know, years later, the way of fixing that was actually really simple. It's just, you don't need to tell a story chronologically, but it, it would take me another year or two to, for the penny to drop. But that's, I think. Sorry, just to interrupt. That's, it's fascinating to hear you say that because that change in response to the agent's advice, you know, well, once you figure out how to do it, actually taking your, your draft and saying, okay, so this can go here and this can go here and it's done, seems to be, that, that seems to be less arduous than actually. Well, I guess my question is, how? why did that take you two years? It's a really good question. Maybe part of it is just, not consciously, but unconsciously being precious about the manuscript, and precious about your work, and not wanting to change it, feeling that that would somehow vandalise it. What, what we're describing is quite simple. We're just far too many dozens of pages into the book before the reader was actually getting uh, much meat on the bone. And, and there's no need for that. All I had to do was start it when he was on his way up to the scene of the crime, take us up to a, a point of action, stop right there abruptly as a cliffhanger, do the introductory stuff then. The reader's clever enough to know what's going on, that we're going back in time. It's uh, just a far cleaner and, and actually more interesting way of dealing with it. Did you reflect on the effect 
that that change specifically would have on decision makers? Yes, 100%. I mean, quite often agents and publishers, they want the first maybe three chapters of your book. And if that's dominated by introducing a character and introducing a sense of place, they might think, well, this is all very well and good, it's well written or whatever else, but this is not commercial and we're going to pass on this. And you can't blame them because plenty of readers would give up during that as well. So yeah, I did it to get the, to get the book sold. But I suppose also did it just to make it better, and it, and it did make it better. One was just to add a kind of a deeper level of complexity in terms of the the kind of clues, just to add some more detail. So, for example, the, the crimes take place uh, alongside a, a, a loch in, in the Scottish Highlands. I had to really think about footprints, because that, that's important. People leave footprints and... I became a bit obsessive about it and became worried that it was it was going to bore the reader. It was just a level of detail that was required. I gave it a much more thorough think-through, if you like. Thinking also about police procedure a lot to kind of make that more realistic too and what would the, how the police respond to a certain piece of evidence and that. Um, that doesn't sound as though it would be as much fun. You described that initial organic burst where well, you're just ploughing through the manuscript and letting this, this idea just happen. But that, that run-through... By the way, that sounds absolutely vital for the finished article, but not much fun. You're, you're spot on. That was uh, painful, actually. And the trouble is, when you change one thing, Neil, in a crime novel, it can have a ripple effect. And even if it doesn't have a ripple effect on other plot points, you have to check that it doesn't affect other plot points. I call it an impact assessment. You know, Whenever you make major changes, you have to think it through. and it, That's the least enjoyable bit of writing and certainly of writing crime because it, it can really put your head in a spin. You can have 12 things in your mind at once. It can be kind of stressful, actually. So Charlie was gaining knowledge, reworking his manuscript to target the decision-makers within publishing. And guess what? It worked. Remember Rory Scarf? He read the manuscript and decided he wanted Charlie on his growing list of authors. Charlie had cracked it, or at least that's the way it looked to him, for about 48 hours. Probably in the few days between him first making contact with me and then us actually meeting, he was headhunted by this firm. And if that had happened even a few weeks later, um, our relationship was would probably have, you know, been formalised enough and developed enough such that he would have uh, he would probably have taken me with him. And my belief is that once you get an agent, that's most of the deal. The chances are you will then get a publisher um, because agents simply won't take on anyone they don't think is commercially viable but you know all in all I probably had in excess of 20 rejections or non-responses from from agents and publishers mostly from agents so some people obviously took a different view from Rory the the, the worry then I suppose that the kind of fear that gnaws at your consciousness after that is that well there was one guy that believed in it there was I don't know 19 guys that didn't was that a flash in the pan you know was that just a glitch And that's Charlie McGarry in the summer of 2014. No agent, no publisher, no book deal. Where does he go from here? Next time on Debut. So I remember I got the email when I was sitting up in the office at work and I had to kind of restrain myself from punching the air. I love this character. He's such a million miles away from the divorcee alcoholic with the empty fridge. You know, you don't watch a big blockbuster movie and you've got Bruce Wayne kicking around Wayne Manor having a chat with Albert about normal Wayne Enterprise things. You're kicking straight into the action. 
debut is produced by me, Neil White, with help from Martin Gregg. You can let me know what you think of the podcast on Twitter, at Debut Podcast. But if you like it, I'd much rather you tell someone you know about it or leave a review on iTunes or somewhere like iTunes. There's more on the podcast at debutpodcast.com. The great music in this series is by Charlie's brother, Michael McGarry. Thanks to Rory Scarf for telling his stories about Charlie. Rory was shortlisted for the Agent of the Year Award this year, so things are working out pretty good for him. Finally, this project would have been killed off on page one without the cooperation of Charles E. McGarry. Keep up with him and his novel on Twitter at Charles E. McGarry and check out his website, charlesemcgarry.com. He still doesn't have an agent. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.